Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June 11, 2014, and this is episode 1365 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I have a good one for you today. I've got a guy coming on. He's a listener to the show for a long time. Chris Haynes, he uh, lives in a tiny home that he built himself, a couple hundred and fifty square feet-ish, uh, with an off-grid system. He's going to tell us all about that and how he did it and why you might want to do it, too. Before I bring on uh, Chris, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today was Survival Gear Bags, man. Survival Gear Bags came right out of the TSP community. Uh, Survival Gear Bags is run by Kelly John Doe and his family. This is how it happened. Kelly found the show so early that uh, I think his forum number's in double digits. It's 60-something, if I remember right. It's cart pushers, his handle on the forum. He got in the forum and said, hey, you know what? I'm in the fulfillment industry. Uh, maybe I could set some group buys up for people. He did that. It worked out. He thought, maybe I could turn this into a business. So he built survival gear bags from the ground up to serve the TS community, TSP community in the TSP community. Been around a long time. Does a great job for people. He's got great gear bags and great gear to put in them. Check him out over at survivalgearbags.com. Next up today, Vic Rantala and Safe Castle Royal. Everything you could ever want for your pre prepping needs. From gardens to guns and long-term food storage and everything you can think of in between, you'll find it at Safe Castle. Really great service, really great pricing, really great deals. Check them out today, safecastle.com. They have an awesome discount buyers club. And I'll tell you what's cool about the discount buyers club at Safe Castle. Uh, you get great discounts on almost everything they sell for the rest of your life for a one-time fee of $49. Bucks. What's even better, if you're a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade, which coincidentally is $50 bucks a year, you get that membership absolutely for free, basically making your membership to my support brigade a dollar for the first year and getting all the other benefits at no cost. And if you're military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, you can get an even better deal on the MSB. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more about the MSB if you're not a member yet. Uh, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, along with first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all do qualify for the discount I was mentioning there. Again, you email me before, not after you join. Before you join, put service discount on the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I send you the discount code back. And, hey, Survival Gear Bags will give you a discount, too. In fact, over 40 different companies offer discounts to members of my support brigade. You'll get over $150 worth of e-books for free on day one and a lot of other great stuff by being part of the TSP Members Brigade, helping support the show at 18.3 cents or less an episode. With that, um, let's get ourselves into the year that was the episode. The episode is 1365, so we're in the year 1365. The uh, the subject or the, uh, t the the title that I have for a segment from Alex Shrugged on the TSP Wiki today for you, Black Death, Ghosts of Purges Past. The panic that ensued during the Black Death is over for now. The people who had expelled the Jews for the plague shifted their blame to the leadership and then to the clergy. Now the Jews have returned, as the historian Barbara Trushman puts it, homeless ghosts, the Jews filtered back to Eastern Europe where they ex where the expelled had gone. Uh, the tax records show that 65 Jewish families had established themselves in Erfurt, Germany. The Jewish community of Erfurt has been founded in the 11th century and was a thriving community until it was expelled in 1349. The city will expel the Jews once again in 1458. Um, and Alex talks about how, in his take... Uh, the term wandering Jews become a stereotype, and it's difficult to understand why the Jews return, except perhaps that people become adjusted to torment and injustice. I think actually the reason people would return is that they saw opportunity to return. So you were thrown out, and you went somewhere else, you didn't die, and most of the people that you threw you out are dead. Um, and then you, we already know from other history segments in the areas in, in Germany and England and such that there were passing laws that said people couldn't leave because there was such a labor shortage. They were putting pricing controls, and they desperately needed anybody to, to do work, anybody to build commerce. I mean, the population has been devastated. It's been almost cut in half 
in, in like a, what is it, a 15-year, 20-year period, and the population's still declining and will decline for quite a while yet before it bottoms out. I mean, it wasn't just the people that died from the plague. It was the people that didn't have anybody to reproduce with. It was people that probably ended up with sterility issues from the plague. It was the malnourishment from, from lack of production. So if you, you know, this is where you're from and you were thrown out of there and now you can go back and there's opportunity because you got through it without dying, then it would make sense that you would go back. Where else would you go? I mean, that might be the other thing is they were thrown out, but where were they thrown out to? Generally, when you're kicked out of someplace, you don't end up somewhere better. But what I, my bigger take on this is, is, is this right here. The, the people shifted their blame to the leadership and then the clergy. See, <laughs> this is human nature that when nature does something, we want to hold some person accountable for it. The, the concept of climate change springs to mind. People did it. Um, and we'll just keep shifting blame until we find someone that we can make the blame stick to, and then we'll punish everybody with money for it. I actually have a really interesting video I put out on Facebook today about climate change. Um, this says climate change is real, and I agree with the video. I agree with the video. A lot. A tremendous amount with the video. Are you shocked that Jack Spierka believes in climate change? Always have. Just not that CO2 is the reason that it's changing. This is an incredible video. I'll put a link in today's show notes for you so you can watch it if you want to have an open mind. It's 36 minutes long. The guy that does the presentation is phenomenal. He's phenomenal. He's double and triple checked everything he's done. The facts in this are irrefutable. And the concern over actual climate change is real. But it's not what you've been led to believe it is. And you can't just blame people for it. You can blame people for pollution, and he does a great job of that. If you're open-minded and want another look at this subject, either as the complete skeptic or the dyed-in-the-wool cultist believer, I subject you maybe want to take a look at this video. Anyway, before I bring my guest on, I, I do want to talk about something we talked about a few days ago. Um, I threw out a little challenge to the audience, a little scientific research challenge, kind of in the flavor of self-directed education, and very few people got it right. I think it's partly my fault, though, because I asked the question not quite clear enough. And it was about NVP, which is nominal velocity of propagation. That's what I was looking for as part of the answer. Uh, but the reason that I'm not going to redo it is the very first person to respond who responded like, I mean, he must have like started playing the episode two seconds after I published it and immediately responded, got the right answer. Um, I had to ask him, finish what you started, and he did. So it was clear enough that he understood it, and I think he's like a telecom engineer or something like that. But this is the part, you could skip ahead to the guest. Some of you are going to go, this is information that I don't really care about, but it might be interesting to you to understand a little bit about technology. The question was, NVP applies either to a spec in copper or optical cabling, okay, Tell me which one it applies to. Tell me what it means and tell me the specification for the other type of cable that really is the same thing as NVP. Um, and quite a few people pointed, you know, talked about, well, there's microwave or radio transmission. And that's true. And there's a piece to that as well, but that wasn't part of the question. That was a third medium. Okay. Here's what it is. Nominal velocity of propagation properly defined is the speed of a signal through copper wire compared to that of the speed of light in a vacuum. Nominal velocity of propagation. So if a copper cable has an NVP of 78, for instance, that would mean the speed that the electricity or the signal or the data signal travels down that cable is at 78% the speed of light in a vacuum. Okay, And we know speed of light is a constant, so when we test that cable for any type of specifications, in our mathematics, we can use that. This doesn't sound like survival. I know this is my history as part of the technology world, because sometimes I'm called an uneducated redneck. So I thought it'd be fun to tell you a little bit about my uneducated redneckism and, and, and how this works. So now, the, that obviously means if NVP applies to copper as a spec, Because it really is the same thing in both. In optical fiber, we'd have to call it something different if my question was valid, and it was, and it's called refractive index. 
So refractive index basically is NVP for optical cable. And let's say an optical cable had a refractive index of 82. That would mean that the light travels through the core of the fiber optic at 82% the speed of light in a vacuum. Okay, So in wireless, you have what's called propagation delay. Because radio waves are light. They should travel identical to the speed of light. They should travel at 186,000 miles per second. Now, I think you can understand why if you push light through glass, it might get slowed down. But I don't think most people realize that if you put light through an atmosphere like Earth, it also is slowed down. So there's a propagation delay in radio transmission. It's very minimal, but it's there. And if we're going to test wireless communications of any kind, we can use that so that we can still use 186,000 miles per second, the speed of light in a vacuum, as our mathematical constant. But what do I know? I'm just a redneck that's got a high school diploma that makes misspellings on my blog all the time. Anyway, I actually thought that that was interesting and a way that you could do something cool with your kids to help them learn about different speeds of travel of things that we think of as being almost instantaneous, like light. That actually we there is a time that it takes for light to travel, and it's difficult to see. You know, we can understand it. Like it takes, I think, about eight and a half minutes for the light from the sun to reach Earth. Um, so there's a delay there, but we can't really tell that. And suddenly we turn a flashlight on, we can't really see the delay. It's too fast for our optical ability and our eyes to see it. But sound has a much greater uh, d delay in travel through our atmosphere compared to light because sound is nowhere near as fast as light. We have plenty of planes that can fly faster than the speed of sound and nothing yet have we developed that can even approach the speed of light. So what that means is that something like the sound from a 22 fired into a berm or a starter pistol fired into the air is sound and it would travel through the atmosphere slower than the speed of light. So this is the experiment you can do with your kids that's really kind of cool. You get a, a simple set of radios like your Stephen Harris walkie-talkies from his radio show and you send your kiddo about four or five hundred yards away. And you key up the mic and you fire that rifle into the ground and or you fire that uh, that starter pistol into the air, you set a firecracker off, it doesn't really matter what, but the sound is transmitted two ways. As sound through the atmosphere, and as sound from one radio to the other. The sound traveling from one radio to the other will travel very close to the speed of light. Minimal propagation delay. It's actually quite significant, the delay through the atmosphere, but it's still at that kind of distance, almost instantaneous where it will take a significant amount of time, an audible amount of time, for the sound to get from the gun through the air to the person a couple hundred yards away. So what you do is you send your kiddo down there to listen to the radio with a stopwatch. And when you fire, they hit start as soon as they hear it. And when they hear the shot through the air, they hit stop. The thing is, if you want to do some creative math, you can actually determine the distance by using constants in mathematics and get an actual distance, a very close approximation, because there's not going to be a perfect time frame, but you can get a pretty good approximation of distance using mathematics if you wanted to teach mathematics in a way that actually had a concrete reality behind it instead of theoretical bullshit like we teach in modern education. Anyway, just thought I'd throw that in there to be interesting today. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Again, I've got Chris Haynes on the line. He is uh, a guy that's really got a great background. Um, Chris is a electrical and software engineer, so I bet he knows some of the stuff we're talking about here. Um, he's finishing up on a major lifestyle change. Just moved into a full full size. Uh, he was in a full size grid connected house. He's now moved to an off grid tiny house on a rural lot. It's about 252 square feet. He's been living off grid now for two years, and he's got a really cool, simple, inexpensive solar system that anybody could probably install for themselves. And with that, hey Chris, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Jack. Hey, I'm going to start you out with the question I start out most guests with. Um, 
We have you on to talk about tiny homes and off-grid living. Yep. What led you there? Because usually, like, most kids when they're 10 years old, picking their nose in, in, you know, grade school, they'll say, I want to grow up and build a tiny house and live off-grid. I guess some do, but most of us get to wherever we get to by some kind of a a crooked path. So what led you to this uh, type of uh, a lifestyle? Well, I think, I mean, I grew up in a small town, and we lived in a pretty small house for, you know, compared to most people. Um, and I, you know, I looked, I wanted a house that was very affordable. And so I eventually searched around. And I, I found a house that was pretty small. It took me like three years to do it. And I'd just gotten it fixed up. It was actually a log cabin that uh, I had to renovate because it had rotted uh, sill logs. So it took me forever to renovate it. Just got it all set up. And then uh, FEMA came along and put it in a flood zone. And uh, flood insurance was just outrageous. And I got really fed up. And so I said, screw this. I'm moving out of here. Uh, I sold it and bought a piece of land out in uh, Western Mass. And I decided, you know what, if I'm going to go out there, I might as well build my own house. And if I'm going to build a house, uh, this 700-square-foot house that I'm in, you know, the cabin, is really too big for me anyway, so why not build something smaller? And I settled on building a 252-square-foot uh, house that I'm in right now. Well, that's cool. And it's it, that's that's very small, but it's not what I call stupid small. Well, it's also uh, bigger than it sounds, too. The, the 252 square feet is is the habitable space, you know, according to the building codes. Yeah. So over, you know, I have a loft, and the loft isn't considered habitable space, but it's 64 square foot that is perfectly acceptable for a bedroom. And sure. so there's 64 square feet, and then I have a front uh, screened-in porch, which is another 80 square feet. So you add all that up, and it's a pretty good-sized house for, you know, one person and a dog. Certainly, certainly. So you live off-grid. Now, different people have different meanings to what living off-grid means. So oh, yeah. what, what does that mean in your situation? Uh, I define it probably in the most the strictest sense. And off-grid is, you know, no connection to the power grid and no uh, grid-derived sources of fuel. And so in that, that definition, I probably don't live off-grid. Uh, I generate most of my electricity using uh, PV panels, and I store it in batteries and I, you know, that, like I said, that's most of my electricity. I do have a generator and I use maybe half a gallon of fuel a month to run power tools and a washing machine and air conditioner if I need it. Uh, I do use denatured alcohol for cooking uh, and I use a little bit of propane for hot water. Uh, my kind of my goal is to any of the, the grid derived sources of fuel, I try and use them in areas that aren't critical. So if my propane tank runs out. OK, I got to take cold showers. It's not the end of the world, you know. Depends. It depends on when in Massachusetts. If you are you don't have hot water in January in Massachusetts, it's kind of like the end of the world. Well, it could be. It could be. So you use a unique off-grid power system. Tell us about it. Yeah, I uh, my house, my, my primary source of power is 12 volts DC. And uh, because it's a small house, I have very short runs from my power panel to all my outlets. And 12 volts DC works perfectly well for that. I've optimized all of my appliances to, you know, run well off of 12 volts. I have a 12-volt well pump. I have a 12-volt refrigerator. Uh, iPads run off 12 volts, no problem at all. Laptops, that sort of thing. Uh, where I need more power than what a 12-volt system can provide, I have sort of what I call my medium or my low-power AC tier, which is just a you know, small inverter attached to my batteries, and I use it to run my hot water heater, uh, electric toothbrush, simple things like that. And it's usually turned off. I, I turn it on in the morning. Uh, take a shower, do whatever, turn it back off, and it's never on. And so that's my, my low-power AC. And then for high-power AC, I just use a generator. I have some uh, dedicated outlets inside the house. I go fire up the generator, do some laundry, and life is good. So in that way, you're sort of using uh, the right power for the right job, I guess, if you will. You know, it's, it's much more efficient to, to run an iPad off 12 volts than it off, is off of AC. Sure. Now, the hot water heater... When you say you're using AC for that, you mean for operational components, because the actual heat is being generated by propane. Yeah, that's right. It's an on-demand hot water heater made by Easy Tankless. And, yeah, it uses propane for its fuel, and then it uses AC power to, to uh, you know, turn the valves and switches and all that kind of stuff and the fans that are inside of it. A lot of people talk about living off-grid. And <laughs> it's a dream. I'm going to do it someday, whatever. And then the hard facts of... The cost of the system to do as much as they want to do or the hard reality of, yeah, I can't do that, so I'm going to have to make lifestyle changes hits, and then they choose not to or defer or put it off. Did you have to make changes in your lifestyle, your quality of life, what have you, to, to do this? I'd say the only real change I had to make was, uh, you know, I'm a, a TV dinner junkie, 
And so I, you know, I eat hot pockets or whatever. And so I, I use microwave for that. So I, I kind of made the decision that I don't want to have a microwave. And so I, I had to go and actually cook my own food, uh, which is a lifestyle change. I think it's for the better because, you know, I'm yeah. now eating more prepared, you know, stuff that I prepare. So, you know, less packaged foods. Um, that's really the biggest lifestyle change I had to make. Uh, and cost of the off-grid system really wasn't an issue because of the way I've done it. You know, it's a, it's a very, very small, you know, the, the PV side of it, it probably costs less than a thousand bucks if I had to rebuild it from scratch. That really wasn't expensive. You know, the microwave is something you'd give up. I don't eat TV dinners at all, but there is a certain convenience. Like, I had dinner last night, I smoked a big old pork butt, for instance, and tonight I'm going to slice them off and heat that up in the microwave. So I guess you give that up, but if you have a propane burner, I mean... Our parents and grandparents just heated things up in pots and pans, so I guess it's not that big a deal. Yeah, so I, I, I do have a gas grill, so I, you know that's. I guess I don't count that as my propane use, but I, I guess I really do cook with it every so often. So I think you can be too strict with you know what is off grid. I mean, propane, yes, it's derived from you know fossil fuels or whatever, but it is self-contained and it does have a self-sufficiency duration, just like a battery does. So if I have a battery that can give me 12 hours of power for whatever activities, then I have 12 hours of self-sufficiency before I need to refill that battery by whatever means I do. Well, if I have a 15-gallon propane tank and that allows me to cook for six months, I have six months of self-sufficiency with cooking. Yep, yep. And in my case, the the propane tank that I use for my hot water, it's uh, I think it's 100 gallons or 100 pounds or I'm not sure what it is, 100-somethings. Uh, that's, let's see, I had it filled up in last October and it's only at 65%. So I'm, I'm not using very much of it for that. And, uh, you know, a propane keeps forever. So there's no, if I wanted to get a much bigger tank, if it was a concern to me, I'd, you know, get a huge 500, I guess, pound or gallon tank and, uh, and just use that, and, you know, probably use it for a couple of years before you had to refill it. Yeah. Um, I, I remember when I was at Ben Falk's place up in Vermont and he has a oil heater that he was forced to put in for some reason. I don't remember why, but it uses heating oil, which is basically diesel fuel. Uh-huh. And I think he's got like it's like a 50 gallon tank. So he's been actually for years now the little bit of diesel fuel he uses to run like his little miniature excavator, uh-huh. pulling that out and running the equipment with it, and he hasn't run out of it yet. It's kind of funny how long things last if you optimize your home to to not need fuels that we take for granted on a regular basis. Yep, yep, it's true. So what led you to a tiny house? I know you said, like, your house was bigger than it needed to be, but, I mean, were there certain things that were really attractive about, you know, going to the tiny house route? I think um, operational costs are really the big thing. You know, right now I have no electric bill because I generate all my own. Uh, my heating costs are really nothing except for uh, gas for the chainsaw, uh, maybe a little bit of, you know, wear and tear on the wood stove, but that's it. Um, so I, I just I like the idea that it's easy to heat, easy to cool, doesn't cost me a lot to keep running. Got you. Now, you keep mentioning cool. Now, you're in Massachusetts, and I've always said it's easier to be off-grid in a northern climate than a southern one. But it does get hot there. Yep, it does. What is your cooling solution? Um, this house that I built is super insulated. So it's got R40 walls, and it uses external rigid foam insulation. So there's no thermal bridging uh, through, the, you know, through the insulation. So it's a true, it's got R20 worth of insulation on the outside, and then another R19 in the, the wall cavities. Uh, the ceilings are R60, similar kind of arrangement. Uh, so... When you heat it, it stays hot, and when you cool it, it stays cool. That's the, the primary thing that I did. Uh, the other thing that I did is, you know, since I'm in, since I'm in the woods, uh, I left the trees up because it's going to be easier for me to heat it than it is to cool it. So I'd rather, you know, get rid of the, the direct solar, you know, uh, solar gain of the house. I don't want the sun heating the house up in the, sure. the summertime. And it's also good because it keeps the, allows the shingles to last forever, allows the paint to last forever. Uh, and you don't get much solar gain in the, the winter months anyway, even if you have southern exposure. And, you know, December, January, you're not getting very much. So I have an unlimited supply of wood, so it's easier for me just to heat than it is to cool. And then uh, for cooling, I'll just, uh, when I get home at night, I'll fire up the generator, cool the place down with a little window AC, and it'll, it'll cruise until morning. Uh, when it comes to heating, you know, I, I basically load up a Homer bucket full of uh, firewood, start the fire, and let it go out at by it's out by usually 1 a.m. and uh, cruises till morning. I don't have to even restart until the next day at five when I get home from work. 
So on the cooling, you're using AC. You're just using it for a short period because you have a small area. Yep. And when you get the temperature down, it stays down. That's right. And you probably don't have to do that that much of your year up there. I'm thinking like July and August are your your really hot months where you need more than a fan or whatever and the window's open. Yeah, and I've also done things with ventilation too. I have windows that are very high up. So I've got, you know, when the uh, air can come in on the bottom where it's, you know, it's coming out of the wood so it's nice and cool and it can vent up, you know, through natural convection out the windows that are placed up high in the eaves. So that helps too. It'll It'll push it off for, you know, probably a few weeks. But in August, you know, I'll have a couple of weeks where I'll be using the AC, no doubt. Tell me about the construction of this house. Is this something you pretty much did yourself? Did you hire a contractor? How, what, 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 is, the, what is the build like? I mean, you know, just, just describe the home to somebody that, you know, I'm not looking at a picture of it. Yeah, the house was, uh, I built as, I wanted to build as much of it as I possibly could. Uh, the state of Massachusetts wouldn't let me do plumbing, so I had to hire a plumber for three thousand dollars to come in, and he, you know, basically put in a hundred bucks worth of plumbing parts and got the permit for me. That was it. Uh, but everything else I did oh, myself, uh, except for the well, which you know you need special equipment to drill a well. So I had a well driller come in to do that. Uh, I had a septic installer come in to do that. That's a something that needs to be licensed in the state of Mass too. So uh, basically, well was installed by somebody else. Septic was installed by somebody else. Plumbing was done by somebody else. And then I built everything else myself, uh, including the electrical and you know, roof and you name it. You know, what would we do without government? Because God forbid you should have installed some pipe yourself. I, I, I just, you know, if, if you were doing that here, no one would even question anything. I mean, it would, it, it's, it's not even an issue. And I know we have our own problems down here, but I just don't get this incessant need to tell people how to live their lives. Yeah, I don't get it. And, and they've plumbers know that that's the case. And uh, the first quote that I got for my house was $7,000. And it was so high, I asked the guy to break out, like, you know, what are you charging me for here? And hmm. uh, there was one stretch from the septic tank into the bathroom. It was, I went to Home Depot and priced out all the plumbing parts. It was like $75 worth of plumbing parts. But I went and bought it myself. This guy wanted to charge me $700 for the parts. He was marking it up 10 times. Uh, oh my God! And you know what? That's just because they have a monopoly, and they know and they, they can, and they can. That's right. So, and that's uh, that's what it really is all about. Is it's about the concept of protecting. You know, basically, it's gilding, and it's the bad kind of guild. It's like a plumber's guild. Yeah. You know, exactly. making sure that they have their their protectionism in place so that they can do things like that. And I mean, even if you did call a plumber to do that job in a in a state that doesn't require a plumber to do it. You probably would have paid twelve hundred bucks, maybe. Yeah, maybe. What does this kind of lead you to with a budget? What is, what is the, the the total cost of, of everything end up costing you, if you don't mind? Yeah, so turnkey, the house, the land, surveys, engineering for the stuff, you know, everything you can possibly think of. Grass seed uh, was about seventy five thousand dollars. Okay. So that's uh, and I, it's it's very hard when you do a build. You kind of laugh at this, but I lost track at the end of what I was buying. No, I understand. At that point, you you run out of money, and you're just on a credit card, and you're like, okay, I got to go to. You're going to Home Depot every single day, and you wave to the manager. He sees you come in. You know, it's uh, uh, you you just lose track at the end. So I'm, it's 75, but it could very just as easily be 70. Um, I just, I don't know. (laughs) And that includes the land. That includes the land. Yeah, I got nine, uh, nine point one acres. Oh, that's 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 pretty awesome, actually. Then, because you're, you did this in phases, and you're like free and clear on this. Uh, the way that I did it, which uh, some people might be interested in, is you know I sold my house, and then I, I built this little 66-square-foot tiny house. It was sort of a prototype. Uh, it was actually going to be a shed, but it got out of hand, and it ended up being a house. But uh, it was really good I did it because I moved it onto this piece of land when I bought it, and I just moved into it. Um, I didn't ask permission. I just sort of did it. And uh, I was able to live in it for the 18 months while I built the big house, and that let me take all of my paycheck and all the money that I had and just funnel it into the house and it turns out that I could earn just about enough money to buy just enough construction supplies to build, you know, every week. I sort of was able to keep up with it until I get to the end. So That's very cool, man. It's a great way to do it if you uh, if you're on a budget. Yeah, absolutely. And and well, and you you know, it's a little bit of a long road, but the end of the road is is about as much freedom as you're ever going to have yeah. uh in our society today because you owe nobody nothing except against the tax man. And, and guess uh, what? For tiny houses, the taxes are very, very low. They have a difficult time 
categorizing, you know, what, what, what are they? How do you do it by square foot? Or how do you, you look at comparables? And uh, I think the tax bill on this, it's nine acres with a, a house is going to be under a thousand bucks. Hmm. And for your area, that's that's dirt cheap. That's dirt cheap. That's dirt cheap for your area. Absolutely. That's that's surprisingly cheap for Massachusetts. I'm um, still I'm still expecting a bill to come in and have it be much bigger. So I, you know, <laughs> I don't know. But I, the bill I got this year was only four hundred dollars because it was on a partially constructed house. Now, can you talk a little bit about why you went with DC for your electrical system? I uh, really, it's about efficiency. Um, I know Steve Harris would probably call me a twelve volt weenie for that, but uh, it really is true. Um, my daily power usage is probably between 10 and 15 amp hours, uh, which isn't very much. And so let's say I came home and I, you know, I wanted to run some lights. And if I was using AC, I'd have to power up my inverter. And the inverter draws you know, 6 watts or half an amp just sitting there powered up. And then you run the lights. So you basically would take, you know, use 6 watts to power the inverter that would then provide another 8 watts to run your light. Well, if you, you know, read for, say, four hours, you just wasted two amp hours just powering up the inverter and, and nothing else. Uh, it's just very wasteful. And, and if you're only using 10 amp hours a day, that's, you know, 20% of your daily power just being consumed by an inverter. Um, and if you also think about it, uh, an, say an LED light fixture, you know, if you take 12 volts and power up an inverter, and then the inverter takes 120 volts AC, goes into the LED light, it actually takes the AC and chops it back down or converts it back down into a DC to run the light, the LED light bulb. So why not just you know cut all that crap in the middle and go direct? That's uh, kind of what I did. So it's really just about efficiency. Uh, if you're not at the level of efficiency that you know, if you're uh, if you're just using standard appliances, you know, if you're off grid using standard toasters and microwaves and all that stuff, don't worry about it. But if you're trying to get you know save every amp hour like I'm doing, um, it makes a lot of sense to go DC where you can, and then you use AC in the places where you can't. Sure, that makes sense. And then the other thing, like you mentioned, since you have a house that's a couple hundred, three hundred square feet total, even with the loft space and all, you don't have any long runs for your power. Right. So right. The, the biggest advantage to me with AC, other than everything runs on it, is that you can go over long distance with fairly small gauge wires. And yep. with DC, the further you go, the thicker the wire has to be, the more expensive the infrastructure is. Yep. But you don't really run into much of that. I mean, what's what's the average gauge of wire running through your your, your house? Yeah, I used, for uh, wiring methods, I used exactly what any electrician would use. I used 10-gauge Romex for everything. I use uh, deep uh, junction boxes. There's, there's standard junction boxes, and then there are junction boxes that have a little more space in the back. And because the 10-gauge wire is a little inflexible, it's hard to, to get in the box. I use deeper ones. Uh, I use a standard load center. It's made by Square D. It's their uh, QO series load center. Uh, uses QO series breakers, which just so happen to be DC rated. So if you were to you know, electrically look at my house, it looks just like a regular house. In fact, if I ever want to convert over from DC back to AC, I could just go around and change all my receptacles and my switches and just put a regular old AC uh, service in and run my house. Hmm. That's very cool, too. Yeah. So... I with all this, you kind of alluded to it a couple times, but you do live in a, a state that seems to love and crave regulation. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure, in addition to you have to have a plumber do this and all, you had to have a, a building inspector to, to, to put your own house in on your own land. So what was his thoughts and what kind of issues did you run to, if any, with a with, with, uh, building inspector uh, when you're putting in a small house like this? Building inspector is good. I, I think I'd recommend to everybody is the first thing you should do if you're thinking about buying land, go visit your inspector because they vary. You know, towns more east in Massachusetts are much stricter and harder to deal with. Uh, Western Mass, these guys are awesome. You know, I literally went to the guy and said, here, here's some study plans for the house I'm thinking about building. What do you think? And uh, he had some questions about, well, is it big enough to meet code? And I showed him in the, in the code here. Yes, it is. And once he saw that, his only comment was, well, I think you're building too small, but Go have at it. So he was uh, he was very cool. Well, that's good to hear. Um, and I think you're right. I think that's going to vary a, a large degree. Joel Salton says sometimes the law doesn't change, the bureaucrat does. Yes. So I think true. knowing the bureaucrat before you begin the project and hoping they're going to be in place at least long enough to complete the project, get them out of the way. Because he's, you know, he's not coming back now. No, not at all. Not at all. I, th I think what's really important to establish with them is that you know what you're talking about. Um, I, I think I sensed anyway that uh, my inspector was very concerned about is this, you know, just some city slicker come out here into the woods that doesn't know what he's doing and he's going to build a, a shack in the middle of the woods. 
Uh, and I think once he, once I proved to him that, you know, I know what I'm doing, uh, he was much better. You know, I started that out by producing a set of plans that was, you know, extremely detailed on, a, you know, my CAD system. And I gave it to him and said, here, here are your plans. And he looked at them and was like, oh, I've never gotten anything this good from anybody else building a house. And just, you know, start off on the right foot with them and uh, don't cut corners and, you know, don't try to hide stuff from them. And I think you get along just fine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My question would be, why can't I go live in a shack on my own land? I, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I uh, there was a lot of times during this build that I, I sort of had to hold my nose and just, you know, clench my fists and shut up. Uh, it definitely yeah. happened a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not good at that. Um, <laughs> on, on, you know, kind of on some other notes, like, so it probably worked out well that you were actually building this as a, as a site-built home. Basically, you built a typical uh, brick and stick, if you want to call it that, site-built home on small scale. Um, in places with less stringent building codes, people are doing things like you have a tough shed brought in and you finish it out. What are your thoughts on things like that? My concern about sheds is just how strong is the structure. You know, those guys cut corners a lot to save money. Um, if it's built really well, I say go for it. Um, I think you're shortchanging yourself. I think that's, you know, learning the skill, you know, having skills necessary to build a shed uh, will go a long way when you go to finishing off the inside. So you might as well, you know, do the whole thing. Uh, but if, you know, if that works for you, hey, go ahead. I think one of the things that really improves that is most of those plans, when you order them, they can be upgraded to two by six instead of two by four walls. And I think that alone has a tremendous increase in the viability of the structure. Yeah, yeah I agree. So tell us about kind of your day-to-day life now. I mean, you have a regular day job. Do you do you work from home? I mean, what's the deal with that? Yeah, so I live um, – I have about an hour commute. I commute to the eastern part of the state from the western part of the state. There's a, a road that goes down pretty much down the center of the strait, the Mohawk Trail. Maybe some people have heard of it. Uh, and it. You know, it's Route 2, and I drive down that. It's maybe 65 or 70 miles. I, I do that commute every day. I've got a, a tiny little car, a Chevy Spark that I drive in. I'm just going to run the wheels off of it. And, uh, yeah, I get up every morning, come into work, do my thing, go back home. Um, that's a day for me. Got you. So is this kind of just like a, a lifestyle thing with, you know, having this, this freedom and being out in the country and, you know, you're kind of living in the woods or are you are you kind of homesteading the place as well? Or Yeah, my goal is to be as self-sufficient as I can out on the property. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm actually going to stay in it or not. You know, I might choose to move up into New Hampshire maybe at some point, or maybe I'll get a second house in New Hampshire. So I'm certain I'm definitely building a garden. I, I put the garden in this year finally. It's, it's actually doing really well. Uh, you know, I'm trying to be as self-sufficient as I can, but uh, and I may I may end up staying there. I don't know, but uh, the goal is to is to do that and um, you know maybe work less. Who knows? Got you, got you. So um. If someone's thinking about doing this, what are like some of the biggest considerations they should take in place before they decide, yes, I'm going to go buy this raw piece of land and, and build this small house and, and do all of these things with going off-grid and what have you? I think the biggest thing most people have to deal with is can you get rid of all of your stuff? Uh, you know, I lived in a small place. It was only 700 square feet. How much stuff can you have? But I was shocked at how much I had. And it's not easy to get rid of. You know, if you're a tool guy like me, you know, you've got a basement full of tools and, all right, maybe I haven't used that tool in six months, but, you know, I don't want to throw it out, but, I, you know, where do I store it? So you've got to get past that and just you have to sort of convince yourself that, yes, at some point I may decide to sell that tool to somebody else and I could be okay with that. Um, and if you can get past that, then it's just the standard things you do with land. You know, will the land perk so you can put a septic system on? Does it have water? Uh, does it have good sun? Uh, one of the things I probably didn't do very well was check the siting of my piece of property to see if I could put a good garden in. I, my garden and my solar panels are sort of in a weird spot, kind of away from the house. Um, but you may want to, if, if you have the opportunity to pick from multiple lots, you may want to do some things like that, figure out where things will go just sort of in your head, maybe pound some stakes in the ground or whatever, take out a, a tape measure and measure where things are going to go. All right, well... As, as you're doing all this stuff, are you? What are your thoughts on kind of taking more of a over time, like a compound approach for people that say, you know, I can get by with this 200, 250 square foot type thing? I've always thought that, you know, one of the ways around the limitations is to slowly expand in more of like a small compound. So, 
eventually having maybe like, you know, um, a building that, that handles a lot of the store's needs. Because as a homesteader, there are certain things you need to have. Uh, that, that you might have better use of if, if it wasn't just a shed, if it was, you know, a place for butchering and things like that. So my thought was always you could kind of build out kind of a little compound. I guess you're not sure if you're staying in your one person, but for a family, that seems like a reasonable approach. Yeah, in fact, it's exactly what I did. Uh, the first thing, okay. I, first thing I did was I found a spot that was, you know, reasonable to do that in. I cleared out all the trees, and I actually built a barn in my basement in my house, uh, my log cabin. And I trucked it onto site and set it up in a weekend. And that's where I put all my tools and my tractor and you know, all the stuff I needed to work on the rest of it. And then from there, I fenced in an area so I could keep my dog from getting at the porcupines. And then I moved my little 66-square-foot house in, and I planted a little bit of grass and set up a campfire ring and you know all that kind of stuff. And then once I got moved into that, then I had a you know, place to stay that was a yard and a little house and uh, you know, sort of a base camp. And then I could expand from there. And that's kind of what I'm doing. So I expanded to the 252-square-foot house. I fenced that in so the dog doesn't get to the porcupines. I got the garden going in. I'm probably going to do another section in the back where I'll clear cut and put in an orchard uh, with bigger trees. Uh, so yeah, that's a very good, very good way to do it, and uh, you pay as you go. So, well, and that's another question I had. So, like, when you bought the land, did you just write a check and buy the land outright, or did you finance the land at all? And was that difficult compared to, let's say, buying a house? Yeah, what I, I had a, a home equity line of credit on my log cabin. Ah. And I didn't use any of it for my restoration of it, and so I had it there. And uh, when they put me on the flood insurance thing, I, you know, I said, you know what, I'm just going to go out and max this out and buy a piece of land. And so I maxed it out, bought the piece of land, and then like it wasn't two months later that Bank of America sent me a letter saying, oh, by the way, your home equity line of credit is closed. You don't have to pay it off, but it's closed. You can't use it anymore. I, got so I just kind of squeaked in under the wire there because I guess home values dropped in price and they couldn't justify the uh, house wasn't enough to cover the home equity line and the original mortgage. So, so um, with that, was it difficult to sell your house then when it was time to get out of it? Um, I did have to go to the closing with money, uh, but it wasn't so bad that it was you know undoable. I, I was able to do it. I lost all my equity in it and all the work I put into it, but. Uh, the guy who bought it was nice, and he really appreciated all the work I had done, so it, it made it easier. Uh, but as far as selling it goes, it was, you know, you get all the stuff out of there you possibly can. You make it as absolutely, you know, presentable as you can. Uh, make sure the grass is mowed. You know, you just you, you show a house the way you show a house. And uh, I got it sold in eight weeks, and, you know, things weren't selling that great, but um, I had enough interest. And it was a unique enough house that um, – you know, single single divorced guys were, you know, all over it because it's, you know, log cabin. It's kind of a, a guy thing, you know. Yeah, the whole thing's a man cave. Exactly, exactly. How long did your entire construction process take from the time you actually made a decision and began and initiated it until you were finished and you were like, the house is pretty much done now? Yeah, it was, uh, let's see, I would say 18 months. But oh. before that, there was maybe three or four months of planning and permits and, and things like that. So I think it was it was winter time. So probably February is when I started talking to them about permitting or whatever. Put the house on the market, and then by June the house was sold. I moved into the you know the little 66 square foot house, and then from then it was about 18 months out to uh, which is last October. And your your waste disposal is just basically a regular septic system. Yep, plain old septic system, a flush toilet with water. Uh, just like a regular house. So your water is. You said that was. You already said that it was a well. Yeah, it's a well. Yeah, I so I, you, I lucked out pretty good because the uh, the well ended up being only 200 feet deep and the static level in it was only 10 feet down. So it let me use a really really small efficient pump to get water out of it. So on the on the water, you said that the uh, you have a well. Can you talk kind of about you know uh, the process of getting that installed and and how you're running that well, being that you're off grid. Yeah, so um, the well is about 205 feet deep, and uh, static level ended up being at 10 feet, which is really nice. I uh, could have been uh, the guy that was, I don't know, 500 feet behind me ended up with a 300-foot deep well and a static level of over 100 feet, so I really lucked out. Uh, it let me use a, uh, a submersible pump made by a company called Sun Pumps, and that pump has a uh, runs off of DC, so it's anywhere from 10 to 30 volts, and the more voltage you give it, the more gallons per minute you get out of it. And um, it's a really, really nice piece. It's you know, made out of stainless steel, you know, machine, it's, and it's rebuildable, which is really nice. So I have a, a whole rebuild kit. I could just pull it out, you know, put all new seals and things in it. 
and um, it produces, like I say, 231 feet of lift. I, I have it down about 35 or 40 feet, and I'm using the rest of its head pressure to pump up a 60 psi uh, pressure tank, just like you have in your basement. Got you. It draws uh, when it runs when it's, the tank is just at 60 psi. It's drawing about 48 watts, so four amps at 12 volts. Takes eh, 20 or 25 minutes to fill up my tank, which is you know, 11 gallons more or less. Um, it works out really well for me. I I sort of have this little routine that I do. So I you know, wake up in the morning, I take a shower, do whatever, flush the toilet, wash some dishes, whatever. And just at the time I finish that, uh, the pump kicks on, so the tank is empty. Let it run, it fills back up, and then I come home at night and do whatever I have to do, and the cycle repeats in the morning. So I'm using just about 10 or 11 gallons of water a day, and the pump doesn't have to stay, you know, it doesn't run very much. It runs once a day, essentially. I think off-grid or not, small house or not, one of the easiest things you can do to kind of improve your self-sufficiency is, is pressure tanks. Oh, yeah. Uh, we have three in our house. And if, if we lose power long before I have to worry about plugging the generator in or anything like that, we have, let's see, 50, 100, 180, about 180 gallons of water. It just comes out of the faucet. Yeah. You don't have to do anything. It just works. And uh, the only time that ever bit us in the butt was we had um, one of the pipes coming into the house. Some insulation came off and it froze. So we used all the water in the pressure tanks without rationing. Because we didn't know that we the water wasn't working because it didn't stop working. Right. That was about the only negative I ever saw to it. And it's that's not a very expensive thing to do, um, I guess, especially if you're in a state where you're allowed to do it yourself. Yeah, well, also, think about this. If you're using solar panels, like during the day when, my, when the sun's out, uh, and if I turn the pump on, the solar panels are basically running the pump. There's a, no energy is coming out of the battery. So you're effectively taking you know energy into the pump, pumping up pressure tank, you're converting electricity directly into pressurized water. If you're doing it the other way, if you're putting it into the batteries, batteries are only, you know, charge efficiency is only 80% or something like that. So you're losing a bunch just putting energy into the batteries before you take it out to put it into the, you know, the pump and the tank. So uh, it, it's really an efficient way to, you know, storing water is a really efficient way to store basically sunlight, if you will. Because it is energy. You, you basically, you've used the pump to get the water into the tank. So it's, it, it is like a battery. It's like a pressure battery. Exactly, exactly. What resources did you use as you were going through this whole project? I mean, it is probably a little bit intimidating to think I'm going to be doing all this stuff myself, whether sites or forums or books or, you know, what was what was your go-to resource? Uh, I'd say so my, my sort of routine was, you know, every weekend I had some jobs to do, whether it was, you know, drywall or flooring or who knows what it was. And if there was anything that I was kind of questioning, like how do I do this, uh, during the week, I'd visit YouTube sites. Like for drywall is a good example. I watched like, I don't know, 50 or 100 drywall videos from guys who, you know, do it professionally. And I learned, you know, tons about how to do drywall. And it didn't come out very good because I'm not that skilled. But uh, there's just enormous amounts of information on YouTube on how to do just about everything. In fact, I don't think there's any single thing that I wasn't able to find a how-to video on YouTube to do. Installing my well pump. Uh, just everything, installing my uh, my uh, ridge beam, uh, drywall, flooring, wood stove, uh, you name it. There was a YouTube video that showed you how to do it. You talk about how you sized your your you know your your panels and your electrical system. How you kind of determined what you were going to install? Was it I have a budget and this is as much as I can do, or this is what I need and so this is what what does that? Uh, I sort of made a list of things that I need. Like one of the philosophies of tiny homes is that you you build them to do the things that you need to do every day. So if you you know if you like to read, you have a little nook that you sit and you read. Uh, if I like to charge up an iPad, I you know need to know how much power it is to charge it up. If I need to run these lights, I need to know how much power. And so I sort of made a budget of all of the things that I was going to use, and I kept pretty careful track of it. And that sort of gave me what my power budget was. And being, you know, the engineering geek that I am, I, I sort of turned it into a little bit of a game. Like, you know, how can I save power this way? Like, for example, how do I um, how do I have a good TV set without wasting all the power on like a plasma screen TV or a big LED TV? Uh, and the solution ended up being one of those little uh, LED Pico projectors. Uh, they have batteries in them that actually can run without power. But uh, if you power them, they only draw, I think it's like six watts or something like that. So I have a little LED Pico projector, which projects a 60-inch picture on the wall. It's connected to uh, like a Roku or an Apple TV or something like that and a Bluetooth speaker. And the whole thing draws 18 watts when it's running. And it's, you know, probably the lowest power 60-inch projection TV you're ever going to find. 
Um, and you know, it's one of the one of the solutions I came up with to to solve you know, the power problem. Well, that's brilliant. Not just from a power perspective, but a TV takes up space. Even a flat screen TV takes up space. So this basically takes up no space unless you're using it. Yep, and it also has dual uses. Like if I do, you know, I do presentations for tiny houses, and I can take the projector and bring it with me. I have Bluetooth speaker. Maybe I want to bring it with me somewhere, and I can, you know, have my phone talk to it. So it's, you know, one thing doing multiple, having multiple uses is uh, is pretty nice too. Now your system does a lot for what it is because you you said I think you said you only have two hundred watt panels, so two hundred watts of solar. Yep. Do you ever even think about expanding that, or are you just like there's no reason to? The only thing I might consider expanding it for is my washing machine because I, I do use the washing machine, you know, every week. I do a few loads of laundry, and I, I have to fire up the generator. If I did it, I don't know, it, it draws a lot of power. I don't know. I think I'd have to expand it an awful lot to get the kind of power that I needed to run the washer. Uh, I just I don't know that I'd spend the money on it. You know, it works so good the way it is now, um, and that's the only one thing I'd need it for. I, yeah, maybe someday I will, but... Right now, I, have, I see no need to. I think if I did it, I'd have to buy better batteries. Because right now, I use just cheap Walmart deep cycle marine batteries. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, my trick is I don't discharge them very far. I only discharge them about 10 or 15%. So they'll last, you know, hundreds and hundreds of charge discharge cycles like that. Uh, if I tried to run something like a washing machine, I'm going to end up discharging the batteries more, which means I probably wouldn't want to use those Walmart batteries. I probably want to use some, you know, off-grid, expensive, you know, batteries and and more and more yeah and then yeah. i'd also need more panels and then my charge controller would have to get you know bumped up and i wouldn't consider buying a i use a mppt style charge controller and the the bigger ones that are much more expensive than the one i have so I, it would just be a it'd be a big bump up you mentioned generator a couple of times what size type generator are you using i have a uh, honda eu 2000 Okay. Uh, inverter style generator. Uh, I built the entire house using that generator. So there's every power tool that I own runs off of it. Fantastic generator, by the way. It's probably the best, you know, thousand bucks I've ever spent on a tool. Uh, it, it's hard for I think some people to get their head around. Okay, I can go out and buy a you know 7,500, 8,500 watt Troy built for 600 bucks. Yeah, but like, a little Honda, right? For 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 a thousand. But that generator is so quiet and so efficient and such a gas sipper, and most people are never actually pulling much more than 2,000 watts when they're running a generator, especially in a situation like you are. Yep. And just the, the portability is a big factor. Like, I go out and I cut firewood. Uh, yeah. I actually bring the generator and a chop saw, and I go out in the middle of the woods with the tractor, and I plug it in, start the generator, and I use the chop saw and cut up, you know, small rounds for the wood stove, and... When I'm all done, I just pack it back up and go. I don't have to break out the chainsaw, and it's you know, just I use it everywhere. Um, um, electricity for cutting things, if it works, is so much better than gas. It, it just is. It's I have a an electric chainsaw, not really an a battery chainsaw, made by Oregon. Uh, it's called a Power Now. It's a 40 volt uh, lithium ion battery. It runs long enough that when a battery's dead, I'm tired of cutting. And the convenience of power on demand, the smoothness, the consistency, not yanking a cord, there's things that saw won't do. I mean, I've got one oak out here I need to drop, and it's a good, I'd say it's a good 18-inch trunk. That saw sort of kind of do it, but I'll probably pull out the Husqvarna for that. But for all that little stuff, and I never even thought of cutting firewood with a chop saw, but that's got to be a lot more convenient and easy than lugging a chainsaw around. Absolutely. You don't have to cut. You basically cut the tree down, cut the branches off the top, and so you'll have a 30-foot-long piece of tree, and you just sort of keep feeding it into the chop saw. You don't have to cut it up into lengths or anything. It's just uh, safer, too. It's safer, and it's really fast. Uh, you can cut enormous amounts of firewood with a chop saw. And I guess that, I mean, the, the big thing I think you have as an advantage to, to managing your homestead now is you know absolutely how everything works. So if there's anything that can be fixed by you without having somebody come do it, you know how to do it. And that means you also know, yeah, I don't really need to mess with this particular thing. Yeah, that is uh, absolutely true. Although I, I don't know, I've had bad luck with contractors in the past, and I, I make it a point to, to know pretty much everything. Uh, I mean, I guess yeah, maybe there aren't something, maybe I wouldn't go work on my septic system or, you know, something like that. Mm. Uh, that's true. But, yeah, I, I think you can, uh, if you put your mind to it, you can you can learn a lot on the internet. That's what it's there for, and uh, you can do an awful lot of things. Well, it's kind of replaced dad, you know. I mean, yeah. Back when our dads and our grandfathers were around, 
everybody knew everything and you learn from the old man and you know we've lost time and space and and so much in the modern age and then like youtube and the internet itself are like that's the gift that returned it back yep because it seems like anybody that does know how to do something figures sooner or later you know what make a video about that i think a lot of us reciprocity i think a lot of times what happens is guy needs to do something on his car goes in and and searches on youtube and finds you know exactly what he needs and thinks well, I know how to do drywall. Maybe I should have in checks. Oh, there's not one. And yeah, I think there's a lot of that kind of reciprocity going on with the Internet today. Yep. Yeah, I think YouTube is the number one do-it-yourself channel on the planet. Well, I have to say it's more useful than a lot of, like, the DIY shows on cable TV. Yeah, they miss you miss half the steps on those. Well, and they're like they're all worried about the production value and the entertainment and the fake drama or whatever, but they don't really show you actually how to do it. Yes, yes. Where the guy with the flashlight in his teeth on YouTube really, you know, he might have to take it out and go, I'm sorry, and this is what I meant, but they get meticulous in showing you all the steps. I guess you can learn how to do things the wrong way, too, and if you don't know the right way, you don't know it's the wrong way. But I think most of the time that stuff works out pretty well. Yeah, I also think there's a lot of guys who, uh, especially contractors, who take a lot of pride in the work that they do. And they've developed t- tips and techniques over the years that they like to share with you to show you whether they want to show you how smart they are or they just want to you know, really share it with you to teach you. Uh, you find a lot of that on YouTube, especially when it comes to the drywall and tile. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, and this is the way I like to do it. And uh, you get a tip that you never would have gotten from a, a do-it-yourself show or even a book. Yeah. I think the contractors are fine with doing that because they're smart. They know that for every guy like you or me that looks at what they do and says, okay, I'm going to use this to do my silver and go, well, he knows what he's doing and I don't want to do this and he's local, so I'm going to call him. So it's not like they're destroying their market. They're actually building their market because there's a lot of people that just go. And I think another thing it does is when a person says, well, why does it cost that much? Yes. If they can look at that video, they can say, oh, that's, it's not that it's hard. It's that's all the steps. I don't want to do that. Yeah, here's your money. And I think it also scare, scares people who may not be qualified to do certain things. It scares yeah. them out of it, so they'll hire the contractor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You made an interesting uh, a comment there, kind of an aside. It might move to New Hampshire someday. Yeah. Anything to do with the Free State Project, or is it just because you like it up there? Uh, I do like it up in New Hampshire. In fact, I'm actually going up to uh, Porkfest to speak. Uh, it's coming up on the 22nd to the 29th. I'm kind of looking forward to it. It's my first one. Um, yeah, I've always liked it up there. Um, I don't, I don't know what I want to do. Maybe I'll buy a snowmobiling ca- camp or I don't know. I, I, uh, haven't quite decided yet. I need to sort of get settled in. I'm still recovering from the build and sure. getting things done, but, uh, my next project will definitely be something up there. Um, and I think if I build, I'm probably going to try and do something very, very remote and yeah. off grid. So that would be cool too. And the, the thing is, because now you, you could probably do your next one faster and cheaper because you know what to do now and what not to do and you probably don't have to hire a freaking plumber to do your plumbing in yeah it. yeah i actually want to do the uh the thing where you cut down pine trees and bring up a chainsaw mill and mill all the lumber for a small cabin i think that would be really fun that that is something that i find very very interesting and and you you have the kind of timber up in that area to make it happen too yep. well man i've enjoyed this i appreciate you being with us on the air today yeah thanks for having me on if uh, you can tell people you do have a blog where people can go kind of check your progress, see your house, see what you're doing, you want to tell people how to find that? Yeah, it's at uh, tinyhomebuilding.com. I just I post things that I'm doing. These days it's more about gardening, and uh, I've actually got a, a post about a bicycle and a trike that I just bought. And I basically just put stuff up of kind of what I'm doing. A lot of it's related to the homestead. So tinyhomebuilding.com. And, uh, yeah. I'll make sure there's a link to today's show notes. And, Chris, thank you for being with us on the air today. Cool. Appreciate it. All right, folks, so with that, this has been Jack Spirit of today along with Chris Haynes, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.